Anti-Asian violence is surging across this country. Deadly shootings in Atlanta. This morning, a man attacked and assaulted a 52-year-old Asian-American woman. New York, Los Angeles, and San Francisco have all reported a rise in hate crimes against Asian-Americans. Across the country, over 3,000 reported incidents of hate against the Asian community. Welcome to Many Roads in Conversation. I'm your host, Caitlin Dwyer. In this series, we ask people to sit down together and talk about issues faced by immigrant and first-generation communities within the United States. Which got us thinking, how have the experiences of immigrants differed from their children who were born here? How about the second or third generation? This year, our conversation series is focusing on parents and kids, grandparents and grandkids, friends and neighbors, sharing stories that span generations. Today, we'll hear Mitzi Asai-Loftus in conversation with her son, Toby. Mitzi was born in Hood River, Oregon. Her parents, immigrants from Japan, owned orchards there. But when Mitzi was 10, she was forced from her home and taken to an internment camp in California and then in Wyoming as part of the U.S. wartime incarceration of Japanese Americans. But let's let Mitzi introduce herself. My name is Mitzi Asai Loftus, used Asai as the mispronunciation of my Japanese family name. So now it's Mitzi Asai Loftus, thanks to the third and fourth generation who insisted on going back to the Japanese pronunciation. You and your siblings and most of my cousins still say Asai. How did that come about? Because I feel like I and the following generation have started using the, the Japanese pronunciation again. So can you tell us about why, why you went by Asai and why many still do? Yes. I can't remember a time when I lived in Hood River up through the year that we were sent off to camp that we weren't, all, we weren't always called the Asais because that's how the non-Japanese members of the community pronounced our name. It's so simple, Asai, but they, how do they got Asai out of that? I don't know, but we were always the Asais. I still say, say my name is Mitzi Asai Loftus, but it was the third generation. Well, I think it's the fourth generation because I'm the youngest of the third generation, and all well, my cousins still say Asai. Almost all of them are beginning to use the Asai pronunciation, and you do, of course. When we had our children, we thought about giving our boys Japanese middle names. Or, or even first names. You were thinking of giving Kenneth uh, Kenji. Oh, that's right. We were thinking of giving Kenneth the name Kenji, which is a nice Japanese name. And we chickened out on that. We decided that we were strong enough to give you a Japanese middle name. So Toby is Asai Loftus, now Toby Asai Loftus. <laughs> What, what are your earliest memories from Hood River before the war? All I remember is my childhood was very happy. Uh, my father had this huge garden. We ate nothing but fresh, fresh vegetables from his garden and rice from my dad would go to Portland with a truck and buy like 10 
more than 1,000 pound sacks of rice, <laughs> which you put in the stone house, which is like the basement in somebody's house, and that we'd eat that rice all the whole year. <laughs> it's a and, lot of rice. <laughs> yes, and uh, so I had to do some work around the farm, and and I enjoyed being in the country, but I didn't have any playmates unless I walked a quarter to half mile up the hill. Mm -hmm. And so Margaret Takagi was my only playmate for all those years up until the war, except when I was at school, of course. So I shared the first through the fourth grades with my classmates in this nine-grade elementary school out in the country before I was sent away to the first camp. So you don't recall, at least before the war, children or teachers treating you differently than your Caucasian peers? No. In fact, um, in the first and second grade, I was the teacher's pet, so I got better treatment than anybody else in the class. I, I was never uh, silent, silent, so I was usually always given a, a lead role in plays and activities that we did. And I am extremely verbal. And people, that's why my generation was referred to as the silent generation. I'm not, I'm a part of that generation, but I have never been silent. So why do you think that is? Do you think it was because you're the baby? I think that's part of it. I was allowed, probably allowed more freedom and privileges than my brothers and sisters. Um, I'm also more like my father than my mother. My mother was very gentle, quiet. And my father is very articulate, spoke out, active, and I'm like my father. So um, thank God I'm, I'm like my father. I mean, I love my mother, but I don't want to be quiet. <laughs> When Pearl Harbor was attacked, we heard it on the radio, and we thought, oh. And my father was downtown in the community center where we, the Japanese people had a hall where they had their celebrations and their parties and their picnics and so on. And they were cleaning up the hall to have a, a talent show either that evening or the next evening. And suddenly the sheriff and his officers appeared and shut them down and chased them home. And my dad came home and he was all, he was hot and bothered. He didn't know what was going on. They didn't explain anything. And we told him what we heard on the radio and he said, oh my goodness. And so then the next day was Monday. I went to school and the same kids that were, I'd been going to school with all these years, one boy spit on me and called me a Jap. And I was very bewildered. I was in the fourth grade. So if, a, if a, a student like that did that, did any other kids speak up or did any other teachers kind of step in or, or do you recall? I don't recall. I think they were all silent. Okay. So, but except that I think the teachers tried to comfort me because um, I think in that Five-month period, I still had friends who played with me at recess and talked to me. Mm -hmm. It was after I came back from the three-year incarceration that things were totally the opposite. 
President uh, FDR signs Executive Order 9066, and posters go up all up and down the West Coast saying, if you're Japanese-American, you're going to have to leave. You were probably too young to really understand what was going on, but do you recall anything about your family talking about it, the feeling in the family before you actually had to leave the home, or do you have any recollection of that? We were put on curfew. We had to stay in our homes after 6 or 7 o'clock and not leave them until 6 or 7 or 8 in the morning. And um, my one of my brothers told me later, laughingly, that he was like high school age or a little older, and he would go out to, with his buddies or they go to somebody's house to play poker. And then they look at the clock and say, oh, my gosh, it's 8 o'clock. So they have to sleep there because they couldn't leave the house. They couldn't come home. Uh, we were also given a list of contraband articles, which we had to haul down to the sheriff's office. And you can guess what they were. Guns, cameras, shortwave radios. Dynamite. Samurai swords, all, yeah. all, that, all that kind of thing. And the government said that there's this warehouse in Portland where you can send your things. But very few people did that because they didn't trust the government. If they said, they said, they're going to haul us away from our homes and lock us up. I don't know if I want them taking care of my stuff in Portland. So they, most people didn't do it, but it, they should have because it turned out it was a good place for storage. They even had temperature control and things like that. So we tried to sell stuff. One Japanese woman got so disgusted when somebody offered her 30 cents for something that was worth $10. And she, like her precious Japanese dishes, she just threw them on the ground and to, to break them. I have an 85-year-old doll that survived all of that. I left her behind, obviously, because I still have it, but I have no memory of my saying, oh, why well, we have to take my doll, or where are we going to put her while we're gone? But obviously, she was put in this upstairs bedroom that we threw a lot of stuff in there and put a padlock on the door. Well, I just know that we were notified that we were going to get moved. They didn't say when. Uh, and so we were starting to prepare, and my mother was trying to f decide what we are going to take because we were told we could take only what we could carry, which means each one of the members of the family carried two things, including me, and then we had a, a family number that was given to us. We, we didn't have a name. We had a family number. And that number was, a tag was put on each of our pieces of luggage plus our bodies. And for me, it was my first train ride, a big, exciting joyful thing to happen. There were 461 Japanese folks in the Hood River Valley who were moved. And we were all moved down to the trains, went to the train station, get on the train. And I thought, I wonder if my classmates will come to say goodbye. And nobody came. And I felt really hurt. And then I, I thought about it and said, well, wait a minute, this is school day, so they couldn't possibly come. Well, they didn't even know I was leaving. But I got on the train, and it was all fine until the train was going to move, and the blinds were pulled down, and there were soldiers with, with guns at each end of each car, 
train car, and we were not allowed to look out the windows. And we didn't know where we were going or how long we would be on the train. And it turned out we went from Hoodruff, Oregon to Fresno, California, which is a long way to not be able to look out the window of the train. You first went to Fresno, California to the so-called Assembly Center of Pinedale, and you were there, what, about three months? Three yes, or four months? about that. My three brothers, Min, Gene, and Dick, all experienced the Assembly Center, Men left within an hour, um, I mean, a month or so, because they were so badly in need of labor to harvest the produce in Utah. The Utah farmers were just crying for workers. So he left. Well, in assembly, the assembly center, it was in Fresno. It was 110 degrees in the shade, and we weren't used to that kind of weather, and we had concrete floors on our uh, in our rooms and they we could go down and get a block of ice and put it in the middle of, of the room to sit let it melt and we'd sit around it and fan it to try to keep cool every night after dark there would be a searchlight that would play over the whole camp like a used car lot does you know over the cars except this time it's the people and and I would lie in my bed, and I could feel that light go past my face. If you have your eyes closed and a bright light goes past your face, you know you can see it or sense it. So every night it was one, two, three, four, five, six, one, two, three, four, five, six. When we moved to the relocation center in Tule Lake, they no longer had such a searchlight. But every night I saw that light, and I'd go to bed, and I'd feel this one, two, three, four, five, six, and then you were transferred to Tule Lake for about a year, and then you're transferred to uh, Hart Mountain, Wyoming for a couple of years. What are some of the most vivid memories of either the assembly center or the, um, or the relocation centers, the camps? Well, in Tule Lake, uh, it was a huge camp, and there were large sets of barracks that made up a block, and then there was a huge fire break between the, these wards. This was a ward, and there was a fire break, another ward, another fire break. Well, I had to walk or run across those fire breaks to go to school, and the, the dust storms were horrible. The snow blizzards in the winter were horrible. And I had to run through that, and, I, and you did couldn't wear pants back in those days, and girls couldn't. So I always had a skirt or dress, and so I'd run across that fire break, and I'd crouch down and cover my legs, and then wait a few seconds, and then I'd get up and run some more. And that that's the worst memory I have of trying to go to school through dust storms and, and snowstorms. Do you remember... The barracks themselves getting really hot or in the summer and or cold in the winter? Yeah, there was no insulation. There was no wallboard. It was just the studs were bare so that the two-by-fours were like shelves. We used the two-by-fours for shelves, and, and we n drove nails into the boards that go across mm -hmm. to hang up pictures and things like that. When we went to uh, Hart Mountain, I recall you speaking with another survivor about being served rattlesnake. Yes. We had rattlesnake once, 
but there was such a big outcry against that, the older folks were incensed. As a child of 12, 13 years old, I thought it tasted pretty good. I wasn't prejudiced. It was kind of kind of like chicken or pork. But, you know, just if you picture in your mind what you're eating, you, I, you can imagine how that went over with the old folks. So they didn't try to feed us rattlesnake again. We never had jam, and that, that's what I missed most of all. We had orange marmalade. <laughs> to this day, I can't stand orange marmalade because I long for strawberry jelly or blackberry. They also gave out script, uh, so much for the adults and so much for the children, something like 75 cents for the kids and $1.25 for the adults each month, which we could spend in the camp canteen, which sold underwear, toilet paper, writing materials, candy, and that's about it, you know. Mm. We had, so we had no income at all, and that kind of script to use. And, of course, we were housed and fed for free by the government, <laughs> which was paid was. by our taxes, which we also paid. <laughs> A lot of the young adults and adults remember vividly how rustic and uh, humiliating the shower and bathroom facilities were. Do you remember that yourself? Oh, of course. There were toilet, uh, the toilets, there were like six toilets side by side facing six others out here, no partitions. And so you had to go and sit there and try to ignore the other 10 people who were sitting there with you. And the showers were totally open, sort of like PE departments that you grow up in in school. Uh, and we had to go through a foot bath because of athletes' foot problems. And they put uh, peroxide or something in there. So if you had any cut or anything on your foot, you know, it'd sting. So us kids just hated to walk through that foot bath. We'd try to leap over the foot bath into the showers. And so some Issei women, the older women, would grab us by the ears and <laughs> run us through that. And what do you recall of the end of camp when they said you can go home and they let you out? What, what's your memory of the lead up to being released and the trip back to Hood River? Well, when the government said, we can't keep these people locked up anymore, we need to close the camps and send them home. Well, half, or more than half of them didn't have a home because they leased property. In our case, we own the property. It's hard to have a fruit orchard by leasing. So most fruit orchardists owned some property. My father happened to own four ranches by the time World War II ended. So my brother Min, who was still not drafted but working in Chicago, said to my dad, well, if you're going to go home and take the kids home, meaning my brother and me, you better do it fast because... The American Legion is trying to keep us from coming home. It's going to get, be tough. So my father said, okay, let's take a vote. 
who all wants to go home? My father raises his hand, my brother raises his hand, and I raise my hand, and my mother raises her hand, no. She's been reading the Hood River newspaper, full-page paid advertisements that had a little blurb that said, once a job, always a job. Only good job is a dead one. You japes, that's Jap plus apes, you japes, stay away. We will make life miserable for you. And here were the columns and columns of names of people in Hood River, most of whom we knew, some who were our friends, our dentist, our doctor, and there, there aren't that many people in Hood River Valley. After four or five weeks of this kind of ad with all these columns of names, I can still name to you five to ten family names of people who openly greeted us, helped us, ran errands for us, bought groceries and things, needs for us that we couldn't buy ourselves because the stores, stores would not sell to us. So what I remember about Min was, he came back to Hood River, and our home was not vacant yet. The, the, the people who were still leasing were there. So my Uncle Min stayed with Carl and Carl Hazel Smith. And Hazel Smith, our, our good neighbors. And Hazel Smith had a cousin, cousin who owned a store that had a no-jap trade sign the in it. The one that I walked past every day. Carl and Hazel kept Min, and when she walked into her cousin's store one day, Ralph Sherb said, Hazel, I don't like the way you're dealing with this Jap situation. And this is Ralph Sherb, who came to our house before we went to camp with tears in his eyes and gave us an address book. And he said, be sure to write to me and keep in contact. And then when we got home, he has a no Jap trade sign in his store. So a little bewildering. So Hazel went in there, and he said, I don't like the way you're doing with this. And she said, well, I don't like the way no, you're dealing with you? What do you mean by you oh, mean you mean? Oh, you, what do you mean? You don't approve of my having Min Asai staying in my house? Well, I don't care to do business with you. And she walked out and never spoke to her cousin again. They both died not seeing each other or interacting each other. That's the kind of... Loyalty to one's belief that leads to that kind of commitment, which Courage. is a death commitment. And and I have a cousin named after Carl Smith. Yes. yes. One of my cousins is named because they were such rare and special allies. And, his, and Min had a dog named Friend, and we have a photograph of this dog, a mutt, and my my understanding is the story was he called him friend because he was the only friend that he had at the time. Yeah, when he got to move back into our house from Carl and Hazel's, the only friend he had was this dog until we came home. What are your first memories of returning to school after camp? Well, you know, the war was getting pretty close to the end because it was May. But I was dismayed. 
I had to walk one mile from my house to the store and turn the corner and go another quarter mile to my school. I walked that distance every day to and from, and nobody would talk to me. Nobody would play with me at recess except the teacher. And the stores, two stores, had no Jap trade signs in them. I had to look at those every day going and coming. And you're a sixth or seventh grader? I was in the seventh grade. Seventh grade. And all the other was not bad, but being alone and and not, not associated with, with, for a person who's as gregarious as I am, was like going to hell. And then halfway to the, to the store, Mrs. Bettsworth lived in this big house set away from the road. And before the war, I used to stop at her place on the way home from school and play in her tire swing, and she'd serve me a, a glass of milk and a cookie. That's the only milk, milk I ever had because we never had milk in our home. And when I came back, she came out to the road and yelled at me and said, Go back where you came from, you dirty yellow Jap. And she sicked her dog at me. Well, I didn't care about what she said to me, but the dog scared me to death because I knew her and I knew her dog from three years before, and I was sure that dog was going to bite me. So I thought, well, I think I'm going to win this war with this dog. If she... He or she doesn't see my face. She won't know that I'm scared. If you look at the dog and you're scared, the dog knows you're scared. So I decided I'm not going to look at the dog. And if I run or try to run, it's sure going to run after me and bite me. So I'm not going to run and I'm not going to look at the dog. So every day I would grit my teeth and I walk past her, Mrs. Betzworth's house in the ditch looking away from the dog and putting one foot ahead of the other, touching, heel, heel forcing toe. myself to touch my heel to my toe as I got past her place. And the dogs ran up to me and that wet nose would hit my leg and it would, was just like a shock, electric shock. And I thought, well, go ahead and bite me and get it over with. But I never did get bitten and I, I felt like I really won. Seventh and eighth grade, I was totally isolated, and I, 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 I considered suicide a couple of times, but I was too chicken. I didn't get anywhere close to that. And I remember there was a few years in my life when I had nightmares. And I, how old were you when that happened? I would guess it was kind of between age fourteen and maybe seventeen or so. So, it was several years after, mm -hmm. and then it ended. But it was I was always um, on the run. Somebody was after me. It was police or something. It was the Gestapo. It was the Nazis. It was robbers. And no matter how hard I ran or no, no matter how hard I found a hiding place, they always found me. And just before they'd get, get me, I'd wake up. Hmm. And I, that was worst. I just wanted them to just grab me and put me in jail or kill me or something, get it over with. But it would just leave me hanging like that. And I just, it's odd that it came when it did and it went away when it did. 
and I was still using my given Japanese name, which is Mitsuko. It was always, they mispronounced it anyway. It was always Mitsuko or Mitsuko instead of Mitsuko. And so I thought, I'm sick of this being Japanese and having a Japanese name, so I think I'll change my name and be 200% American. And Mitzi Gaynor was a famous actress, singer, dancer, uh, that back then. And I thought, well, that's pretty close to my name. I think I'll just name myself Mitzi. I was polite and friendly to other Japanese Americans, but I didn't want them to get close to me and become my friends to pal around with me. And there were two boys, Japanese-American boys, in my high school and me. There were just three of us in the high school. I was expected to date them. And nobody and, else. And nobody else. And I wanted to date some non-Japanese boys, but I was afraid that it would embarrass them or that they would have to refuse me and hurt my feelings. So I just dropped the whole thing. I do remember in the summer the carnival came to town because this one one of the two Japanese boys wanted to date me and he was always bugging me. He he called me and said the carnival's in town would you like to go and I said no. And then my one of my friends, my girlfriends called me up and said, "Hey, the carnival's in town. You want to go?" I said, "Yeah." <laughs> so I went and guess who I saw at the carnival? <laughs> so and I had a kind of a crush on a couple of different boys that I w would like to have dated. So when it was Sadie Hawkins' dance, I thought, this is my my chance. But I, the more I thought about it, the more I decided I couldn't do it. Because if I asked the guy and he refused me, uh, then I'd feel hurt because he didn't want to go with me. Or he wanted to go with me, but he was afraid because of the discrimination and, and then would have to refuse me, then he'd feel bad. And uh, no matter who, how you looked at it, just it wasn't a winning situation. So I just gave up. Well, I, I wondered if you wanted to date some girls that you were pretty sure wouldn't, would turn you down. Because of my Because heritage? of your, your being half Asian. Um, that would never have occurred to me or never happened to me because I don't think anybody could see that I was half Japanese. I, I don't look it. Um, it's very rarely in my, in my life that anybody was able to guess that I was half Asian. But most of the girls in your high school are, knew you from many years before because you lived in Coos Bay since you were in the first grade. Sure. And so they knew you were, they knew me because I was a substitute teacher in every school around and they knew I was Japanese. I'm not aware that that ever happened. And for me, not looking Asian was kind of an unusual situation because I remember as a young boy looking at pictures of all my cousins and thinking how beautiful their eyes were and why didn't I have eyes like that? And as I got older and learned how in some Asian countries and some sometimes here people with Asian eyes get surgery to look more Caucasian, it kind of breaks my heart. I wanted eyes like that when I was small and kind of wished I had them. 
But I'm not aware of any situation where there was somebody who didn't want to be a friend with me or, or date me because I had a Japanese mom. I, I, I don't, I'm not aware that that ever played a role. For well, me, I remember hearing racist jokes about Japs and chinks. And I'd say, well, you know, I'm half Japanese. And they'd look at me and say, well, you're different. See, I don't look it. So I had that kind of awkward situation of looking like I was white and so therefore accepted, but wanting to be proud of and represent my, my mixed race heritage, but I didn't look Japanese. Yeah, and the response that they that person gave you was not very <laughs> well. Right, and you know, yeah, I don't recall intentionally masking the fact that I was Japanese American. I was proud of it, but because I didn't look it, I wasn't the recipient of that kind of uh, mistreatment. And I think it, there's a really interesting. S- story or thought for just for those people who are of mixed race who don't look one or don't look the other. I mean, I, I look like a, I'm a white passing straight man. And with that comes a lot of privilege in this society. I happen to be half Asian and I don't receive the negatives of being half Asian, but I'm, I feel it when I see it and I feel guilt for not receiving that, like my peers who do look Asian. I think for many people who are of mixed race, particularly if they are more white passing, I, I think that's a common struggle of receiving the privilege of being white passing and having the guilt of not receiving the negatives. So you're, you experience this trauma during your teens and you change your name to Mitzi and you go to college and then you get a Fulbright scholarship to teach in Japan, which you weren't necessarily that enthusiastic about. You probably wanted to go somewhere else instead. Yes. So when I got to Japan, I realized that I had this terrible monkey I was carrying around on my shoulders from the time I was 13 till I was now 25. So for basically 12 years, I was, which was going to destroy me. What a self, self-hatred, self a self, what? Uh, uh, just, just wanting not to have a Japanese identity. Just rejecting your... I wanted your to be 100% American. And for you, 100% American meant not Japanese. Right. Okay. So when I got to Japan, I wanted to fit in. I wanted to interact with them. But I never passed for Japanese because my personality was too out there. I was too American. And I was, my body language and my expressions and my curiosity, my unfemininity, everything gave me away as a foreigner. And it puzzled them because I looked kind of Japanese and I spoke Japanese pretty well. As soon as I get on the train, people would uh, see me get on and they go. It's, I mean, usually Japanese don't. You don't do that. That's not polite to do to anybody. To, to, to look to gawk at you and yeah. yeah and and I went in the heat of summer, so I was wearing these beautiful dirndls of bright colors and 
and all these pretty colors. And a person of my age who's not doesn't in Japan back then wore nothing but black, navy, gray, white, dull, tan. The men would always invite me to sit if there was an empty seat on the train. I rode the train five stations to school. But the women never would, or if I tried to sit with them, they were very unha un unhappy about it. So I brought that up with the teachers at my faculty in the Japanese school, and they all went, you tell her, no, you tell her. <laughs> they thought I was a prostitute. <laughs> <laughs> so how does that impact that experience and coming back impact you as an American in America? Well, I was a lot more critical of being American when I got back. <laughs> um, I remember when I was in high school and starting to apply for scholarships and universities, you always advised me to mark Japanese American um, as my race. And I assume you did that for my brothers as well. Do you recall any of us questioning that or 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 what what was what was your was it something you wanted us to be proud of, or did you think it would give us an advantage? We thought it would give uh, an advantage uh, back then it was it was a good thing to to be a minority because they had quotas. And um, then there also were prejudices about Japanese Americans being smart and good students, and we want those. So since we knew we couldn't afford to send you to college on our own, we wanted to get all the help we could get. And we figured that would be a point in your favor, that you might, the, the universities might be more interested in you than the next person. Certainly while I was growing up, I always considered myself Japanese-American. And when I was accepted to my university, there was a program, pre-orientation program, specifically for students, uh, minority students. At the time, it was called the Third World Transition Program. And so there was the Asian group, there was the African-American group, and the Latina group. And I immediately got together with all the Asian-Americans, the Koreans and Chinese and Japanese-American kids. We had discussions and workshops and talks all through the week. And at the very end of the program, we had a kind of a talent show where we each group would get up and make jokes and poke fun at the stereotypes about our individual groups. And that was fine. And then a smaller group got up, and that was the multiracial group. And instead of making jokes and poking fun at stereotypes, they basically all stood up and talked about what it meant for them to be of mixed race. And that, that hit me upside the head really hard. And I immediately called up my dad and said, you know, all these years I've considered myself a Japanese American. And in doing so, I basically rejected the fact that I was half white. And, and I wanted to apologize to him. He didn't, he said, it's perfectly fine. But from that day forward, whenever I have a form where I need to identify what race or if I can't choose either multiracial or if I can't choose multiple boxes, I won't choose anything. And I actually, it makes me angry when I don't have that choice. 
When you return to Hood River now, what does that feel like? What, when you see Hood River today, what, what, what memories come back and what things seem very different or foreign to you? It's, it feels a lot different. It, I feel comfortable and happy when I go to visit there. Uh, the, the scenery the, is all as beautiful as it ever was. I'm glad I don't live there. I'm glad I didn't have to raise my family there. Um, and all of those n negative memories that we're talking about here now are not in my, the forefront of my mind at all, only when I, I talked about it and uh, I questioned about it. And that was part of my father's doing. He said, do not keep negative emotions inside you because they grow and kill you. And always look forward, never back. You cannot do anything about what happened back there. You only can do something great now, which will make the future brighter. Now, when you were a, uh, a younger, young adult and decided you wanted to be, quote unquote, 200% American, for you at that time, that meant rejecting anything Japanese. What does 100% American mean to you now? I think it means um, fully embracing and accepting your situation, your circumstances, your heritage, no matter what it is, religiously, racially, whatever. Many Roads to Hear is a production of The Immigrant Story. Many thanks to Mitzi and Toby Asiloftis for their time and storytelling. And to the St. Andrew Lutheran Church in Beaverton, Oregon, for allowing us to record there. This episode is part of the I Am an American series, generously funded by Anne Nato Campbell. It was produced as part of the Oregon Rises Above Hate Coalition. This episode was produced by me, Caitlin Dwyer. I did the audio editing, assisted by Greg Palmer. Music was composed by Corey Larkin. Our executive producer is the ever-delightful Sankar Raman. For more stories, please visit our website. Listen live at prp.fm or stream us wherever you get your podcasts.